BJ Oncology is live in Paris at ESMO 2022. We're speaking to leading experts across the field of oncology about the biggest updates being presented at the Congress. Here are highlights from day four. First, we heard from Dr. Tony Chowry about results from the COSMIC 313 trial for renal cell carcinoma. Yeah, COSMIC 313 was presented in the presidential session Monday. This is a randomized phase three trial of uh, cabozentinib, nivolumab, ipilimumab versus nivolumab and ipilimumab. So this is the first time triplet goes against a doublet and first line uh, RCC, and it's, a, it's really a uh, contemporary doublet. Uh, the study uh, included the patient with clear cell histology and uh, randomized them, as we said, to carbonivo-epi versus nivo-epi. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival by independent central review. The study end up positive. We have met the primary endpoint of PFS, has a ratio 0.73, 27% decrease in the risk of progression or death. Responses were <coughs> numerically higher in the triplet arm, uh, disease control rate uh, higher in the triplet arm, time to response the same. Now toxicities were also higher uh, in the triplet arm, especially with diarrhea, rash, and uh, liver function test increase. Overall survival has a follow-up of only 17 months, therefore quite um, immature. And one thing is, and this is just, we're just looking at it, it's a bit prelim to dig into it, but there seems to be a signal that that combination is more active or essentially active in the intermediate risk, which is the dominant um, the dominant subgroup, the intermediate risk group. The hazard ratio goes down from 0.73 in the whole population to 0.63. The difference in response rate uh, is like 10%. So there could be something there. Too early to tell. Dr. Erica Hamilton gave us an overview of antibody drug conjugate and targeted therapy combinations in HER2 expressing breast cancer. So clearly antibody drug conjugates have kind of taken uh, breast cancer by storm, initially with HER2 positive, and now we're seeing it really infiltrate triple negative and even hormone receptor positive for TROP2 ADCs or HER2-directed ADCs for HER2 low. I think the challenge with ADC combinations is it's certainly an attractive concept, but with how effective our antibody drug conjugates are, we're really gonna to need to make sure that it adds efficacy and doesn't add too much toxicity. So there may be certain classes of agents such as immunotherapy or endocrine therapy that combine particularly well with antibody drug conjugates. And then there may be other targeted classes, perhaps AKT or PARP, that may be a little bit more of a challenge. Dr. Bardia actually gave an excellent talk on Saturday about some of the strategies possibly to help, such as staggered dosing, uh, but certainly a lot of trials right now looking at combinations uh, with antibody drug conjugates. We spoke to Dr. Jonathan Rosenberg about results from cohort K of the EV103 trial. EV103 was a multi-cohort study studying combinations of infortumab vedotin um, in combination with different agents. Uh, EV103 cohort K was a randomized cohort of infortumab and pembrolizumab in combination. Um, patients were randomized to either infortumab monotherapy or infortumab and pembrolizumab. Uh, the study design was to look at the 95% confidence interval around the objective response rate as opposed to um, a study design uh, powered based on uh, progression-free and overall survival. It's a non-comparative phase two trial. Uh, patients received infortumab and pembro 
um, and Fortumab and Pembro both on day one and Fortumab alone on day eight, um, every 21 days. Uh, patients uh, were treated until progression or toxicity. Um, and the results show that there's a 64% objective response rate for infortumab and pembrolizumab combination therapy, um, and a 45% uh, objective response rate for infortumab monotherapy. Uh, the the progression-free survival and overall survival um, data are immature, um, but are, look promising uh, at this time point. Um, the safety data suggests that there is an increase in skin reactions in the combination group, as you might expect, because it's a non-target toxicity for both pepperlizumab and infortumab. Uh, the manageability of the toxicities was uh, similar between the arms, um, although patients who received uh, combination therapy um, did have slightly higher toxicity rates. Um, the there were no treatment emergent new toxicities from the combination of infortumab and pembrolizumab. Um, they were essentially additive toxicities rather than synergistic toxicities, and no new safety signals emerged um, compared to previous data. These data, I think, are quite promising um, and suggest that in combination with the data from cohort A, which was recently published in JCO, um, showing a 73% response rate and an overall survival of 22.6 months in cisplatin-ineligible patients, I'm sorry, 26.2 months in cisplatin-ineligible patients with metastatic urothelial cancer, that this may be a promising regimen um, for a patient population with a significant unmet need. Finally, we caught up with Professor Charles Swanton about new discoveries for air pollution-induced non-small cell lung cancer. We've been interested in understanding the origins of lung cancer in never smokers. Um, we've known for at least two decades there's an association between environmental pollution in the context of these PM 2.5, these 2.5 micron and below particles, and lung cancer risk. But that was only an association there was a lack of functional mechanistic data to prove causation. So we, we tackled this problem in a number of ways. First of all, we looked at the incidence of EGFR mutant lung cancer across the planet in various countries, Korea, Taiwan, um, and uh, through Public Health England data in, in England. And we um, showed that there's a correlation between rising PM2.5 levels and um, uh, incidence of EGFR mutant lung cancer. So that substantiates what's already known, but specifically looking at EGFR mutant disease, commonly seen in never smokers. We then um, took a mouse, took three mouse models where we um, attempted to, to induce an EGFR or KRAS mutation in the epithelial tissue. And then three days later exposed mice to diesel particulates, PM2.5 particulates, um, three times a week for three weeks. And at the end of the experiment, roughly about week 10, we harvested the mouse lungs and we found more tumors um, in a dose-dependent manner um, of PM2.5s in, in, in mice exposed to pollutants compared to those not with saline control. So I think that tells us that there's clearly a promotion effect going on. The question is, how does this happen? Um, and what we found through a series of experiments is that pollution exposure in mice and humans results in release of a number of cytokines, one of which is interleukin-1-beta. Of course, we were alerted to that because of the prior Kanakumumab-Kantos trial, which showed a reduction in lung cancer incidence, um, new lung cancer incidence with Kanakumumab. We thought, well, this is you know, rather coincidental. So we looked into it in more detail. IL-1-beta is being released by the macrophages, by the epithelial cells, we think. And um, that stimulates a sort of, we think, the transdifferentiation of a small population of cells in the lung into a progenitor state. But on its own, it, it won't proliferate competently. 
If, however, that original cell that begins the transdifferentiation process harbors a mutation in EGFR or KRAS, off it goes and forms a tumor. So um, the question is then, where do these mutations come from? Um, and the answer is um, they, they occur as a natural process of aging. So you don't have to invoke um, a tobacco exposure or a direct mutagen. It is just a function of aging. As you get older, you get more of these mutations. So um, what does that tell us about tumor initiation? If we think about the main classical model of tumor initiation, um, it's based on environmental carcinogens driving mutations in DNA that results in expansion of a subclone due to a driver gene that's hit with a, a mutation. Take tobacco, C2A mutations in the classical G12C KRAS mutation is a prime example. The, the alternative model is one first proposed by Isaac Berenbloom in 1947 that proposes a two-step model. One, you need the initiator. Two, you need the promoter. The initiator is the mutation. The promoter is the, in this case, pollution. Now, the, the initiating step, um, obviously, is a mutation. Um, but that doesn't have to come from an environmental carcinogen. As I said, it's, it can be part of the natural process of aging. So I think our, our, our pollution work best conforms to that Isaac Berenbloom model, recently substantiated by Alan Balmain and colleagues over the last decade and a half. Um, who've um, really been pioneering work in this area and showed actually that 17 out of 20 environmental carcinogens um, in mice don't induce DNA mutations. So this may be a, a more common um, mechanism of tumor initiation than perhaps we once thought. And actually, it's just interesting to note that, you know, Isaac Berenbaum did these experiments in 1947, um, you know, um, 75, 80 years ago. And, uh, to some extent, perhaps we've been, uh, how can I put it, um, slightly distracted by the tobacco carcinogen DNA mutation origins of cancer, which clearly, are, you know, happen, um, and perhaps ignored some of these earlier experiments where, you know, which might be more applicable to the majority of environmental carcinogens. I, I don't know. I guess time will tell. That concludes our highlights from day four. Stay tuned with VJ Oncology for more coverage throughout the Congress.